Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider Podcast. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week I will be speaking with Robert Bacconi, co-founder and CEO of Energy Vault. Energy Vault entered into a $1.1 billion combination agreement with Novus Capital II in September. It has developed a unique energy storage technology that uses simple gravity and pulleys to hold and release stored energy from renewable sources. We discuss Energy Vault's process for rolling out its first projects this year and how it has added financial security to the transaction despite the challenging market. Take a listen. Great. So, Rob, you know, last month we spoke to what is in some ways kind of a sister company to Energy Vault and Heliogen, and we got into Bill Gross's winding path to Idealabs and, and sustainable energy. I'm really interested to know more about what brought you to this space. Sure. Well, I, first of all, knew Bill Gross about 12 years ago. So it was Bill that um, had me collaborate with him on renewables and the importance of decarbonization. Uh, and we had uh, collaborated on a few ideas, and then uh, about seven or eight years uh, into our collaboration, he had um, asked me about this new energy storage concept and to collaborate with him as a co-founder on this amazing new idea he had to solve this problem, which you know, energy storage, as you know, is uh, one of the biggest problems related to getting renewables deployed and sort of getting us off of fossil fuels. So. Uh, so that's where it started. Uh, my first interaction with Bill, he was uh, trying to hire me to be a CEO of his, one of his companies uh, called eSolar at the time. Uh, Heligen now is actually the end state that's going public that you referenced last month of that company. So it's I feel like it's just come full circle now and very excited to um, not only, I guess, uh, be a part of the beginning with this idea as a co-founder with Bill and our other CTO, Andrea Pedretti, but now being on the, the cusp of uh, our initial public offering uh, and, uh, and going into the, you know, going into the broader uh, markets more globally with the, uh, with the technology. Like Heliogen, Energy Vault's technology is just fascinating. On, on some levels, it seems as simple as those little kinetic swinging ball cradles that everyone used to have on their desk um, in terms of how it works with the energy. But I'm sure, I'm certain it's more complicated than that. But just how is it possible that the kind of the simple weight and momentum can store as much energy as you guys have been able to, to accomplish with designs? It's a, it's a great question, and I get that frequently, was, hey, why hasn't somebody thought about this? I mean, it seems like something we should have solved a long time ago if it's so innovative. And, you know, if you look at what the basis of our technology is gravity, which 90% of all energy storage today are these large pumped hydroelectric dams. They're built all over the world. Anywhere you've got mountains uh, and a river or you have these reservoirs, uh, it all started there. And that's what really was the beginning of the idea. And if you think about it very simply, if you think about it, what a pumped hydroelectric dam is, it's it's a water elevator, right? You've got water that's going down that turns a, uh, a motor that generates electricity, and then it gets pumped with a water turbine back up to the top. And so that's like a water elevator. And what we're doing is we're the elevator, but instead of water, uh, our elevator exists in any building, so it can be built anywhere. We don't have the dependency of needing a mountain or needing water, which can be a precious resource in some places. We have an elevator that we can put with at a minimum dirt uh, and let alone uh, things like coal ash, waste materials, tailings from mining, uh, wind blade fiberglass. So all these things that would normally have to be landfilled uh, or disposed of. Um, so fundamentally we've taken the concept of gravity and pumped hydro but taken it and found a way to build it in an innovative way, an innovative structure, uh, and do it with materials that um, have a beneficial reuse 
in recyclability, so toward this circular economic vision. Of course, all orchestrated with AI and computerized control software. So that's something 15, 20 years ago we couldn't do. So uh, it's really fascinating now that the concept of taking gravity, which has been around forever and all energy storage and now using it in an innovative way with software, material science and very sophisticated civil and structural engineering for this breakthrough. And so as far as storing the energy, how does your round trip efficiency compare to that of lithium ion batteries? And how do you compete on costs with things like natural gas peaker plants? Sure. Well, look, we focus strongly on the technical performance and we also knew the importance of efficiency and round trip efficiency because we understood that there's a lot of technologies out there in thermodynamic processes, compressed air, liquid air, uh, even some longer duration batteries that um, are all very low efficiency and that makes a difficult economic case. So we focused on optimization of the movement of this composite block in the power electronics as well uh, to ensure we had something that would be efficient to at least um, 80% and above. So we, we really focused on that because um, we wanted to be in the same range roughly of lithium ion. So you asked about lithium. Lithium is in between uh, 85 and 88% efficient as a technology. So that's really important to utilities and customers because if you're experiencing a lot of loss in your process of storing energy, that makes your business case very, very difficult and very, very challenging. So uh, we focused a lot of innovation on uh, eliminating uh, things in the uh, architecture and the infrastructure associated with the movement of that composite block. And that's why we evolved our from our first product, what we call our EV1 tower to the new EVX, which essentially is much more vertical motion of these, uh, think about vertical industrial freight elevators, moving these composite blocks uh, in a vertical motion and very limited other motion. And that keeps the round trip efficiency high. And we proved out in Switzerland in July, 2020 at scale, five megawatt interconnected um, with just off the shelf product. And in our first design over 75%, which is the highest for any mechanical system and any other thermodynamic uh, compared to anything else. Um, the new system is between 80 to 85 because of how we've architected it to help make it more efficient. So that was fundamental. And then you asked about cost and, and how do we do uh, on a, um, you know, versus lithium ion, for example, that obviously there's a lot of demand for these lithium ion batteries from the transportation sector, you know, electric vehicles, uh, and now in energy storage. So that we've actually seen actually cost increases in the last two years. However, that being said, what's very interesting about our tech versus lithium from a cost perspective is we don't degrade over time. What does that mean? That means that while the customers with lithium have to replace those depleted cells that um, you know essentially degrade anywhere from two and a half to three and a half percent per year, it's called the augmentation capex. We have zero degradation over time, zero. So that means um, on a levelized cost basis, which is how our customers think about it, meaning what's the cost of this? Not only the initial capex, but the cost of the uh, any augmentation capex, which lithium ion batteries need. What's the operating expense? Uh, so that's another key cost component. We're extremely low because um, you know only one third of our system actually needs maintenance. That's the power electronics. The other, the fixed frame, the structure, no maintenance. Uh, we can be built in any ambient temperature. For example, lithium ion needs air conditioning. So think about the middle of the desert, what that's gonna cost you. Uh, so because we can be built in pretty much any ambient temperature, our operating expense is also very low. 
And from an end of life perspective, that's another cost. It's sort of a, a cost people don't talk about, but you better have something that's environmentally friendly to dispose of at the end, assuming you dispose of it. Of course, our systems can last you know, basically forever. It's just a big structure uh, there. So from a cost perspective, we've got a technology without degradation that on a levelized basis uh, and the other things we're doing to optimize over time is gonna be very, very cost competitive. And, and you know, as today, we're lower than lithium ion today. How long was your process of prototyping this technology and when will we see the first plant in action? Yeah, our prototype cycle started with a one quarter scale system that we started in 2018. So we founded the company in November, 2017. Coincidentally, I was in Switzerland with the CTO who happened to live 30 kilometers away from me. So that was a coincidence. So we incorporated a daughter company there immediately to build a first one quarter uh, scale uh, prototype. In that prototype, we proved out the main functionality of the, essentially the, the lowering and lifting of, of uh, composite blocks. In this case, they were barrels to start. We also wrote the software stack and looked at how it was going to compensate for um, this pendulum effect that normally happens with motion. Uh, so we developed the algorithms to optimize the movement of those blocks without human intervention. But we also spent a lot of time on looking at alternatives to concrete. And in fact, we collaborated with Semex, which is the largest materials company um, for certain products in the world. I think they're the third largest overall. Um, and they had developed a polymer to make roads in low cost areas or emerging markets where you couldn't ex uh, afford expensive aggregates. Uh, and we took that application that was used for these roads where cars and trucks could drive on. And we developed it so we could make our composite blocks from soil. So just from the excavation at a minimum and then develop that science to also use waste materials in the end. So that we did that in 2018. Um, we announced the company the end of 2018. And when we announced it in the concept of gravity storage and innovated in the way we did it, we got a tremendous global response from all five continents of the world. Uh, and based on that, we chose to go right to commercial scale. Uh, we had a lot of interest and in SoftBank in the end, uh, the Vision Fund came in and funded our Series B. And in 2019, we started to build the first commercial scale system, five megawatt. Even through a tough COVID, uh, we got that interconnected to the grid. Again, five megawatt, uh, so full commercial scale uh, in a town uh, outside of Bellinzona in Switzerland. Uh, and that system was interconnected July, 2020. Uh, we then commissioned that system software, et cetera, and started to show it to customers. Got a lot of interest from things that are publicly announced now, uh, Saudi Aramco, Energy Ventures came in as an investor. NL Green Power, the largest global IPP in the world, 28 countries, 50 gigawatts wind, solar, hydro under their management and growing. Uh, so we got some of we got interest of some of the largest energy names in the world um, and announced agreements with them. Uh, and then as we developed and along that process, it was very interesting because we got feedback from customers around the things they loved about our product, which was they loved the low cost, they loved the sustainability aspect that was unique, to be able to use you know, waste materials, that was unique. We were local. So two thirds of what they spend with us was put right back into the economy for jobs. That was amazing for them. Um, and they liked the round trip efficiency. The two areas of feedback they gave us were one was related to the height of the system. Those I said, look, you have this tower crane, we, could you do something more compact? The second thing they said is, we would like an alternative to lithium ion, your first system was long duration. We would like something where you could at least start at three to four hours, the high end of short duration. 
and give us something competitive where we could do something much higher power, 25, 50, 100 megawatts, and shorter duration, four hours, um, but be uh, seamless to go to long duration because we don't degrade. So we took that feedback and ended up essentially um, redesigning to the new form factor, which is EVX, which is just a building and think vertical industrial freight elevators. Again, all orchestrated with the same software, the same composite blocks that we proved out and built at scale in Switzerland, uh, and the same fundamental dynamics of gravity and the power electronics that are charging and discharging the energy. So that's that became the basis of all the agreements we announced in, uh, last year in 2021, starting with Saudi Aramco, NL Green Power, and just going right up through um, our announcements of over half a billion dollars with um, DG Fuels for sustainable aviation fuel, uh, and most recently, Korea Zinc that, that we'll talk about later. And so it looks like Energy Vault is currently on track to generate its first revenue this year. How much concrete visibility do you have in your next few years financially with many of these projects still being at kind of a letter of intent stage? Well, uh, we have a lot of projects that are not letter of intent stage that have been announced. So let me let me add some color to that. Um, so we for this year and going into this year, um, you know, we looked at uh, as we were in the in our process to go public, we had a set of eight agreements signed that included contracts, LOIs, as well as purchase orders. So we got enough visibility last year as we went to the public markets mid year to start our pipe process, where we felt confident that we could predict roughly where we thought we would be for 2022. And what you've seen the second half of the year, if I can highlight, um, first of all, we closed a series C of $107 million. So that gave us the flexibility that regardless of what happened in the capital markets, we could still keep our foot on the accelerator for growth. So that's important because that gives us certainty of capital, regardless if there's something that would happen with the IPO uh, and because of the visibility we had with customers. Um, we then announced the, the SPAC itself. Um, shortly thereafter, we announced the MOU and the investment by BHP. So BHP, you know them, it's one of the largest, I think the largest mining company in the world, about 140 billion market cap, massive operations in Australia, but also other places of the world. Um, so we announced them not only as investor, but the MOU for storage. Um, so actively collaborating with them for storage and getting started here in 2022. Um, we then announced the deal I mentioned, DG Fuels. So that's a definitive agreement. It's over half a billion dollars. So three projects starting with 500 megawatt hour in the state of Louisiana. And that's a project where we're going to be providing storage combined with PV to make green hydrogen that supports their waste to energy process to make what's called SAF or sustainable aviation fuel, which is essentially green jet fuel. So that's that's a large, uh, very large project to get started. 500 megawatt hours, about 180 million, just the first project. Uh, and as we publicly stated, uh, that's scheduled to break ground in mid 2022. Um, and then finally, what I'd say is get, getting to your question on visibility uh, and uh, and where we are. We announced another significant agreement uh, with Korea Zinc, which is the largest non-ferrous metals producer in the world, and they're the leader in things like zinc silver, uh, lead, and there's a rare metal called indium, which is a very soft metal uh, that's uh, used in, in a lot of products. And um, uh, so we announced a, a deal with them where um, we're gonna be starting deployments in 2022 in Australia. They have a large fully owned group called Sun Metals, which is their smelting operations for zinc and other mining. Uh, they also have a company called Arc Energy, where they announced in December where they acquired over nine gigawatts of wind and solar. And they did that because of their commitment to get to 80% powered 
by renewables by 2030, which is a very aggressive goal, and 100% by 2040. So what I really like about the leadership at Korea's Inc. is not only do they put targets, um, but they invest the capital behind it to make it happen. Uh, and that's part of what happened with us, where not only did we announce a strategic partnership with them to go help them electrify their operations and power their operations, but they also invested $50 million into our pipe. So we were not raising money. We were talking to them about projects. They really liked our company. They saw the important role we can play in their evolution and their clean energy transition. So we agreed to upsize our pipe from 100 million to 150 million uh, as a part of the agreement with them. So we're just super excited about that and working with them. And um, as you can imagine, having that extra 50 million it puts us in a position where we're substantially fully funded in the business plan, regardless of what happens with redemptions. Uh, all but 20 million uh, is the only minimum cash, but uh, something that, um, again, given what um, Novus, our partner has in trust, 288 million, um, we can now focus just on execution, regardless of what happens in the capital markets. And as a CEO, I can tell you, if you have a situation where you can just focus on execution, it is the best situation to be in. Great. And that's actually what I wanted to get to next is just because, you know, I'm, you know all of our listeners are watching the market as it is right yeah. now. Um, but, you know, with all of those different funding mechanisms that you just mentioned, as well as um, some of the business that you've already locked in, you know, I'm just looking at your CapEx looks like, you know, you're going to be spending more than 200 million this year on CapEx and nearly that next year. You know, how, how well have you have you effectively covered all of those things so far? Sure, Nick. By the way, it's a great question and the right question, given where the markets are. Look, as we went into this, and this is, I think, important to understand how we approached going public. And number one, what was a little bit unique about how we did it is we started a Series C at the beginning of the year. We were watching what was going on in, in the SPAC markets, of course, and, and that could be an alternative. Uniquely, um, two of our investors that were in our last round were uh, involved in the SPAC markets and they had a trading SPAC. So they actually approached us uh, when we were starting our Series C process and they said, Rob, go ahead and do your Series C. Maybe you don't need to raise as much. And why don't you fully fund your business plan through our SPAC? So because they were already investors, Nick, it just aligned the discussions because we had aligned interests as an investor in the company. They knew the company already. They had already done diligence on it because they invested in it before. So we didn't do a uh, SPAC-a-thon, I guess, if, if you can use that term or look to maximize value. Uh, and we signed the LOI with them in April and chose to essentially cut back our Series C to a full 100 million. Why? We wanted that 100 million in case something like what's happening now is happening, where there's been a shift in how investors are thinking about either, you know, new growth companies or or the SPAC as a structure. Um, so, uh, you know, you always have to be prepared. What I've learned in my career, you always plan for a worst case scenario just to be prepared and you have to be able to adapt. So as we went into the pipe markets in the second half of May, you'll remember that's when the NASDAQ corrected the first half of May and it was the most difficult time, but we actually succeeded in raising a hundred million pipe following this hundred million uh, series C that it ended up at 107 million. So that locked us in to prepare us that in any scenario, we'd have a substantially funded business plan uh, in any event. Uh, so as we enter this fall period now, I guess what I'd say is um, the extra kicker here is not only the Series C with names like BHP, with names like Pickering Energy, with all the people that uh, re-upped, meaning at a higher valuation, people like SoftBank, Semex, so all of our existing strategic investors, 
But the fact that then you have Korea Zinc, who we weren't even talking to them about investment, want to put $50 million in our pipe as well. Um, what that means is, in terms of how we're thinking about our business plan and our capital spending, uh, to, to come back to your question, we're fully funded roughly in, in any event. Look, this is the result of not only solid planning, solid preparation, uh, you know, every battle's won before it's fought. Uh, somebody once said, I think uh, you have to be prepared. And obviously having a great team of people, very seasoned, all 25 to 35 year vets in big public companies, but also people that have worked in high growth environments and having just a great set of investors uh, and customers that really like what we're doing. Obviously, when you have that as well, it, it, you know, we've got ourselves situated just to go basically take on the world and execute and build out to a massive sales funnel and a, uh, and a great set of, um, you know, great set of customers. Great. And that answered most of the questions I really wanted to ask you about the transaction, but I'm still not done. There's still plenty I find interesting about the technology as well that I wanted to get into. Yeah, And, and one of those things is just that given that you know, gravity is sort of the main ingredient for your plant working, which is everywhere, do you see any geographic restrictions on where your projects can be built? And how do conditions like wind affect your plans? And are there any areas where you would not build? By the way, great question, because we are gravity. So unlike lithium ion that can fit in a smaller form factor, we obviously have a larger footprint and a taller one. Um, so we won't be building in cities where the cost of real estate is very high in any event or or even, even in residentials, but we're targeted on large utility scale. And when we redesigned our first EV1 tower into EVX, remember what I said about the feedback from customers, they wanted something that uh, was shorter, more compact. So we designed it to international building code. So we lowered the height by 40%. So essentially, Nick, you can build this anywhere you can build a 20-story building. So as long as you can build a building, you can build it. And if you think about where, we're, where are we building, um, out in wind farms, out near these large, very large so, um, you know, solar arrays, middle of the desert, coal plants that are making that transition. There's a grid connection there. They're shutting them down. There's coal ash. We can use that for our composite blocks. It's all locally built. Um, so in terms of limitations, uh, you can't put us in swampy land, <laughs> but otherwise where you can, uh, anywhere you can build out uh, and build a building and, and a lot of these, you know, a lot of the areas where utility scales being done, even think about desalination plants that need 24 seven power to run them. They need eight to 12 hours. Lithium's impossible, way too expensive. They can't do long duration. You need an economical solution and we can build those buildings out where there are these industrial facilities. So from that perspective, we don't really have a limitation because our target market is this large utility scale. And, um, and also you mentioned wind and things because we designed it and shortened it and made it a cladded building to international building code, wherever we build, we're gonna have to comply with that location's building code. So for example, if it's an area where there can be hurricanes, that would adapt the type of structure we're going to build and the type of cladding potentially customers know that. So it's uh, flexible that can be built and fortified, for example, for certain locations. But in the end, we have to comply to those international building codes. And I think for the most part, everywhere we're building, if you look at where the large dollars are getting spent, utility scale, we have so much market and we need more, by the way, I'm, I'm rooting for all storage companies because we need, we need a lot of them as long as they're you know, as long as they're sustainable and, and you know, some technologies have their challenges there. So I, I think we have that responsibility as companies, especially we're solving one problem, renewables, um, let's not create other liabilities. And we were very conscious of that, even with our supply chain, everything being built local, lowers THGs from the 
transportation sector, et cetera. Cool. And also on the flip side of that, are there underserved areas where energy storage could provide a uniquely positive solution where for one reason or other, other energy storage options uh, just won't work? Well, in emerging markets, it's a, it's a great question where the grid hasn't been built out. Uh, you can think about doing something off grid in areas where you could build a large solar array with storage to power um, smaller towns and villages over an area where you would build a capability from a an off-grid scenario where you could build um, you know, the, the, the grid lines into areas and, and start to bring power that's powered by the sun, for example, and with a, a coupling of storage to you know, power what you need to through the night, um, but make sure you can, you can power things during the day or begin to power industrial processes or desalination plants, for example, because they need drinking water in a lot of uh, arid locations. So, so those are, I think, opportunities for this type of storage. The other thing that's unique with us about our storage is it's a building and there's a lot of central area in it that's unused. So you can think about integration of things like data centers or what about vertical farming? where you've got, you know, if you think about vertical farming, uh, their three biggest costs are real estate, okay, check, uh, energy, because they a lot of times they use lighting to power and, and for their growth of the vegetables. Well, you know, that's what we're doing. We're storing renewable energy. And then the third, of course, is labor um, for those cases. So I think there's other opportunities for us to think about innovation and integration given we're building a building. And that's, if you think about how we founded the company, how did we innovate to start? We took gravity, Some, why? Because time was so important for us to get to market quickly. We knew this problem was massive. We knew it was gonna take people by surprise. And we really wanted to get in front of it. That meant that we couldn't rely on science projects or things that weren't proven. So we took gravity and then applied our innovation to ultra low cost materials, material science, um, the structural and civil engineering and software to create this innovation. In a similar way, we're thinking about our structure now that's sitting there. How could we utilize and integrate and innovate? Um, so I, I think there's a lot of possibilities that really become endless, especially think about the circular economy. So if you think about our role in society and the reuse and recycling, think about the group's coal plants, you know, Duke Energy as an example, they have 80 billion, or sorry, 80 million tons of coal that they have to dispose of over the next uh, 15 years. It's a massive liability, I think at around $8 billion. And think about if we could reuse those things in a sustainable way um, as we're building out renewable energy storage. So I think those are, I mentioned those three opportunities, uh, one of them being the environmental and the beneficial reuse of waste material. So all of those things uh, are important. And, and one of them in particular, the beneficial reuse of waste materials, completely unique to our energy storage. That gets to something else I wanted to ask, which is just how scalable are your designs? And you, you mentioned some of the different projects you've already signed on to. Like how, are, how are the needs in terms of scale and some of those other factors different between whether it's corporations or you know, potentially working for utilities, stuff like that? Well, it's another great question. So part of our redesign to EVX is we went to a platform that was mo modular. So you can build out our system in essentially 10 megawatt hour modules. It's a, essentially four meter by four meter square of a structure with a, think about a, uh, an elevator, a lifting system in it for the composite block. So you can just build that out where you build, depending on the power you want, you build down one access of the building and depending on the storage or what we call the energy, that dictates how many composite blocks because that's the storage medium. Uh, you know, this is 
this goes back to your physics classes, right? You're, you're, it's all potential energy at height. So we have these blocks that are raised at height. It's all potential energy. When you need the energy, the software lowers it, turns a motor and, and discharges, and we can accelerate, decelerate. It's all controlled with software. So everything's modular. You build down those two axes and you just build it out as a building. People can start. So you mentioned how customers used it. Um, some of them may start big, like DG Fuels we announced. They're starting with 500 megawatt hours, so a full half a gigawatt hour, because they have a large, uh, a large duration need uh, for the storage to make green hydrogen. Others are going to start with 50 megawatt hour, which is still an important system. I mean, that's still a, a good sized system. And then they can build on that same site and just expand it. So, uh, Nick, so it, it's a, it allows us to be flexible as we build. That was one of the innovations in the shift to our EVX platform. Brandon, going back to the SPAC side of things a little bit, you touched upon how you decided to go with um, you know, the SPAC option and, and how that worked. But in terms of just sort of now, why, why did now sort of seem like the right time as opposed to just continuing those private rounds for a period of time and then, and then a, a regular way IPO? By the way, it's a great question. Um, it's not really something I consider why now because we're, we're down the path. So we're, you know, SEC has signed off. So we're, we're doing it. This is a, is a good question <laughs> from... You know, what's changed from when we decided to go into this? A lot's changed. And when a lot changes, you know, you have to rethink things and look at, you know, do you need to make a course correction on it? And, and here's what I'll share with you. We have a great partner in Novus. They were investors already. I stayed committed and we stay committed to our partners through the process. We did adapt things. We, we did a hundred million pipe. We did a series C before to make sure we could be flexible. We ended up getting more money in the pipe, which we took it, even though we weren't raising the money because of the nature of the capital market. So I would say, Nick, uniquely because of the, how, the, the solution we have, the customer traction and adoption we were seeing, we had opportunities. I think other companies didn't in terms of strategic customers and not only going to deploy us, but continuing to invest in us. So to give you, give us that flexibility. So so we continue that path despite the weakness in the markets. And in fact, we've only gotten stronger with getting strategics like Korea Zinc, like BHP that are investing in the company, which when you have a large strategic that's going to deploy you because also they're an investor, it just aligns interest. So what I share with you is we still believe this is a very attractive option uh, for the company and, and we're well-funded. So that's, that's pretty unique to, at, at this stage, as you know, how difficult the markets are. But I'd also share one more thing with you, and this, this may sound a bit um, contrarian, but I will tell you that I don't think the SPAC structure is one that gives investors at this point a good indication of the type of company they're investing in. And what I mean is, if you look at the nature of the incentives of these structures now, and the fact that there's redemption levels happening, regardless of the potential the company have, because the nature of the cash and trust, having a warrant associated with it. And you have the, you know, the hedge funds and a lot of the arbitrage players that are structuring things, not only going into the SPAC and the DSPAC, but even in the first three months, it's what's unfortunate about the SPAC market is those dynamic short-term focused traders are whipsawing these stocks around uh, and unfortunately making it difficult for investors to understand what's the value of the company. So I hope that's something over time that even the SEC spends more time on to understand, is this the right type of structure that should go forward for these? Um, and you know, again, I'm saying this from a position of, we obviously took action to ensure regardless, we were gonna be funded, fully funded for our business plan to, to go forward. 
Um, but it is, you know, something that uh, given where we started in the market to where it is now and what's evolved, it's an, it, from my perspective, it's a little unfortunate that you have this type of trading activity that happens sort of pre-DSPAC through the DSPAC for a period of time that are, um, that's based on potentially other things that don't have to do with the company's value. Yeah, certainly. As you imagine, a SPAC insider, it's something we're talking about all the times in terms of, you know, potential ways to improve SPACs and, and, and ways to get over some of the, you know, kind of the current ecosystem, the current uh, market conditions that we're dealing with. But yeah, of course, there are going to be better days in the market ahead at some point. Um, yeah, and, and there will know, be. There, an, I, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, you know, and there, there are advantages to being a publicly traded company in general. I'm just interested in what, sure. what are some of those advantages that are most attractive mm -hmm. to you as well? Well, look, we went into this one is because of the nature of getting a fully funded business plan. So that was fundamental. And we've obviously done some things along the way as the market change as we've discussed to ensure we have it regardless. But the other thing that's uh, important about that is as a public company, given the higher threshold on compliance and things, you're viewed differently and treated a little differently, for example, from your customers. So public utilities um, that have a high compliance standard um, and any public companies, the, the largest ones, the fact that we're a public company means that um, we're going to have a, a little smoother process in contracting. We're going to have access to the debt markets at better rates. Uh, and in this business and renewables, as you know, it's, you know, it's quite important to have that, that access. And then what I'd say is, you know, overall, I think the, the ability for us to have a platform now that is public for our company. So that's just being a public company, the, the IPO is going to raise the visibility not only of what we're providing, but, and this was fundamental to our mission, Nick, we have a big problem in the world and, and we need to turn up the volume uh, on it uh, and, and make sure we're shouting it. I mean, it, it's amazing. Um, you know, you saw John Kerry came out just two days ago um, stating that we, we're, this is a grave situation uh, that we're in. And he was, you know, he's a climate czar for Biden. So I think in being a public company, I mean, our, our mission of the company is decarbonization of the planet. And I think the, the being a public company will uh, give us the ability to, I think, have a little more visibility about the problem we're solving it, how we're solving it. So we uniquely are integrating waste materials, circular economy, making our solution local, good for local jobs, minimizing GHGs from the transport sector. This, is a, this isn't a nice to have. This should be an obligation of every company. And so from that perspective, I'm very happy that we're going to be public and that we can you know, turn up the volume on not only how we're helping in decarbonization, but the how of our solution, meaning the how it's architected, how it's developed, how it's designed innovatively to ensure we're being responsible about the planet. Right. Well, that's a perfect note to end on. I think it's it's going to be a really fascinating to see to keep following really Energy Vault and its rollout, especially with these different use cases in, in these different locales as well, and, and and the ways in which it's going to be changing uh, our energy mix and, and and the way that we power everything. Uh, it's going to be great to watch. And uh, and thanks so much for being on. Nick, thank you. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure to uh, chat, and thank you for giving me the opportunity. And uh, I appreciate all the prior things that you've aired and learning about different companies, but in particular getting perspectives from how the other companies are dealing with uh, you know, the volatility in the markets and how they're evolving in their uh, SPAC and these SPACs. So uh, appreciate that. Thank you.